This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. For the first time in nearly 20 years, the FDA has approved a new drug to treat Alzheimer's. But how well the drug actually works to slow cognitive decline and memory loss in Alzheimer's patients is still unclear. Science journalist Lauren Aguirre has a new book explaining why treatment for memory loss conditions like Alzheimer's has been so hard to come by. She tells it like a detective story centered on a small cluster of patients who showed up in emergency rooms over the last several years with absolutely no short-term memory, like just completely wiped out. The doctor would tell the patient, you're in the hospital, you've lost your memory. And then moments later, the patient would be like, where am I? Why am I here? The book is called The Memory Thief and the Secrets Behind How We Remember. Lauren Aguirre is with me now. Welcome. Thanks for taking time today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. What has been the real barrier to understanding, you know, what causes Alzheimer's, like why memory loss happens? So all brain diseases are hard because the brain is complicated. But Alzheimer's disease is particularly hard because we don't know what causes it. And if you don't know what causes something, it's hard to fix it. And um, one of the reasons we don't know what causes it is because it begins early Uh, before symptoms show up. So it could be 15 to 20 years before someone finally notices that there's a problem, that that the initial damage is is beginning. And it's also difficult because there may be more than one cause. There may be more than one sort of flavor of Alzheimer's disease. Um, It's difficult because it's a disease of aging. And so as you age, lots of insults accumulate. And um, some people have more than one type of brain disease. They may have some cerebrovascular disease mixed in with Alzheimer's disease. So it becomes a very complicated picture. This this new drug that the FDA has approved uh, preliminarily focuses on clumps of something called amyloid beta in the brain. What is that? Yes. So those are plaques of proteins, abnormal proteins that have kind of clumped together and they create these sticky plaques between neurons Um, and they cause inflammation. And they are one of two signature uh, misbehaving proteins in the brain of people with Alzheimer's disease. That's how you define Alzheimer's disease on the inside. The other one is called tau. Mm. So The prevailing theory for about 30 years has been that amyloid beta causes the disease. And so that that is the very first thing to go wrong. And there's a number of reasons for that, sort of very understandable reasons for why that has been the theory for so long. Um, One is that um, for the somewhat rare familial Alzheimer's disease, there are three genes associated with it. And they're all involved somehow in the processing of this protein. Mm. They've also found that um, in mice, they create uh, mouse models of Alzheimer's. When they create mice that have a lot of these plaques, um, the mice have memory problems. And then when they create drugs that remove those plaques, uh, the mice get better. Hmm. So um, it, it really made sense as a theory. So so is the idea that these misbehaving proteins are like disconnecting memory circuits or somehow like impairing the ability to make new memories? They're basically sort of gumming up the works. Mm. Um, yes. And, and impairing communication between neurons and, and ultimately killing neurons. And if you, you kill enough of them, um, you can't form new memories. And ultimately, your, your old memories get degraded as well. Okay. So, so the, the treatments to this point have really focused on like, how can we stop or reverse the accumulation of these tau and amyloid proteins? In the brain. Well, most of the focus has been on the amyloid proteins and not the tau proteins, which is interesting because the very first patient to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's um, by Alois Alzheimer had both proteins in the brain. And in fact, 
the tau proteins actually begin to accumulate at ground zero for Alzheimer's disease, which is in the hippocampus, which is the little part of your brain that is responsible for forming new memories. So it, it's interesting that tau has sort of been uh, left out of the picture for so long. And it's only recently that it's um, the spotlight is turning toward tau and that uh, clinical trials are now underway trying to remove tau to see if that is more effective mm-hmm. as, a, as a possible uh, treatment strategy. And generally speaking, have, have any of these treatments been successful at like reversing Alzheimer's or yet curing it in anybody? No, uh, no. And, and in fact, even the most optimistic Alzheimer's researchers will say, we're not talking about a cure. We're talking about a treatment. We're talking about something that we hope will slow down the progression. Um, and even though that doesn't sound amazing, it actually is amazing because if you can get someone early enough and slow it down by even a few years, you're really going to reduce the number of people who have actual Alzheimer's and who can no longer live independently. So the mystery at the heart of your book, Lauren Aguirre, is um, is, is not specifically Alzheimer's. It's, it's a more obscure disorder. Um, but a couple of neurologists who, are, who very much care about Alzheimer's as sort of the big picture really zeroed in on this one particular disorder. Why? What, what did it seem to offer that might open some, unlock some, some understanding about dementia? So they zeroed in on this um, bizarre so-called amnestic syndrome because the syndrome zeroes in on the hippocampus, which, as I said, is sort of ground zero for Alzheimer's disease. And um, the hippocampus is very vulnerable to damage. It's vulnerable to damage from, say, loss of oxygen, but it's very, very unusual for just the hippocampus to be damaged if someone has some sort of brain injury. And the first patient that was seen in 2012 had just the hippocampus damaged. And there's a certain type of scan you can take, an MRI scan, that will show when the neurons are really sort of under distress and um, the hippocampus glows really brightly like a light bulb and the rest of the brain that's unharmed is sort of dark gray. Hmm. So this is unusual. And uh, Jed Barish, who's one of the neurologists um, who's been leading the investigation, had never seen anything like it and neither had any of the other neurologists or radiologists at his hospital. I mean, it was enough to really make them sort of like step back and go, whoa, what? I mean, some of the words that they use in, in the book that they would talk to you about how it just looked like, you know, the, the hippocampus had, had like been blown up or, or had just been completely toasted uh, in this brain yeah. where everything else seemed to be functioning. The rest of the brain seemed to be largely untouched. That's right, completely untouched. And and you could see it too in the way that the patients were. I mean, they were perfectly fine in, in every other way other than not being able to lay down new memories. They still knew uh, who they were and who their mother was. And, um, you know, they knew how to ride a bike if they started out knowing how to ride a bike. They just couldn't remember anything new. Right. So they were in this kind of perpetual loop, like I was describing a moment ago, like every, what, 10 seconds or maybe a little longer, they'd be like, hang on, where am I? (laughs) What's going on? Right. Well, one of the patients whose story I follow in the book is really a remarkable person. Um, When when he he overdosed on fentanyl and and woke up with amnesia and in the hospital, he would literally forget, you know, so the doctor came into the room and he noticed that the doctor was wearing the same brand of shoes that he wore and would point it out. And then the doctor would walk around the end of the bed. And by the time his shoes came back into view, this young man who I called Owen to protect his privacy would say, oh, hey, you're wearing the same brand of shoes I have. So just over and over and over, nothing, nothing stuck. And he had to hear over and over uh, as if it was brand new information you overdosed and you hurt your hippocampus. So every single time it was just a devastating realization. Yeah. I mean, the amount of like the, the trauma that that would be on a person to just lose all ability to lay down new memories is really something I had never thought about before. You actually um, write in the introduction to the book, Lauren Aguirre, that you had 
you you were sort of primed to be sensitive to this idea because you had of however it was a very brief but you had had an experience sort of losing your memory would you tell us about that sure so i had um you know it was early one morning and i was working um as so many of us do early in the morning and suddenly for no no apparent reason just this feeling of dread crept over me and at the same time my memories just sort of slipped away so i didn't know who I was, where I was, you know, I could still see everything around me and hear and feel, but absolutely nothing made sense. I didn't even know, you know, where I was in time. And it was absolutely terrifying. And once it was over, I took myself off to the doctor, you know, I thought maybe I had an ear infection. How long did it last? Maybe a couple of minutes. Mm. Um, And so it turned out that it was a type of seizure called an aura. And I had a bunch of brain tests and, you know, I had a bunch of neurons in my brain that, that were misbehaving. And one idea was to have surgery, which I didn't really like. So I, I asked for a lot of second opinions. And one of the people I turned to was Jed Barish, who is also a friend. And he came over, he looked at my scan. He's a very sensible, cautious, practical person. He said, ah, you're going to be fine. Just take medicine and you'll be fine. You don't need an operation. And Mm -hmm. he was right. And I'm extremely lucky. It it never happened again. But it did give me a glimpse into just how scary it can be to really not know who you are. You know, we, we talk about how important it is to be present in the moment, and it is. But if you don't have any connection to the past or can't imagine a future, the moment is just a really scary place to be. Right. Especially since the moment that you're reliving is the constant discovery that all you have is the moment. (laughs) Like that it's like, it's like a trauma on top of a trauma that there's just like, where am I? Where have I been? Where am I going? Like none of this makes sense. Right. And and it's pretty ironic that I remember this so well (laughs) and I can't, I can't explain that, uh, but I do. Yeah. Um, Okay. So, so uh, Jed Barish, uh, a, a neurologist. He's the one that really um, takes hold of this bizarre amnestic uh, disorder that that shows up. He sees one of these patients show up with just like a completely burned out hippocampus on that scan. Everything else looks fine. Um, and he starts scratching his head. Why? Um, this was such a rare, random thing. So obviously, you know, for a scientist, it's kind of like, ooh, this is weird. I should look at this. But beyond that, like what what made it seem like something worth spending time on trying to find out if other people had had this and sort of what was behind it? Well, initially, after just the first case, he was sort of like, wow, that's really weird. And the other people he was working with, too, are like, that's really weird. And of course, they thought about one of the most famous patients in history, HM, who is, uh, you know, he had epilepsy and uh, it was untreatable. So they removed his hippocampus, both of them, and then he couldn't form new memories. So that's how they found out what the hippocampus does. Um, So initially it was just like, this is so singular. It's like someone took a page out of my neuroanatomy textbook and highlighted the hippocampus. So whenever you can zero in on just one structure, Um, and take that out of the system, it gives you insight into how the system is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't really until the next patient came along, which was in 2015, who had exactly the same pattern of brain damage that he said, okay, hold on, this isn't a fluke, something's going on here. And what's changed? Because this person also had a history of, of heroin use. And that's what the first patient thought he'd used. But people have been using heroin for a very long time. So Barish is also trained as an epidemiologist. So he said, let's let's look at the context. What's changed? And what had changed was that fentanyl, starting in 2012 in Massachusetts, was making its way. A synthetic opioid. Um, A synthetic opioid uh that's about 50 times more powerful than, than heroin, which is why so many people who overdose on, who die of opioid overdoses are, have been taking fentanyl. Mm. So that's that. And it had started and it had started right at the time that these cases started showing up in in Massachusetts where he was, Dr. Barish was. Fentanyl had started getting cut into, slipped into sometimes knowingly for the um, for the customer and sometimes not. People people were taking either fentanyl or they were taking some other opioid, not realizing that it had fentanyl mixed in with it. That's right. In fact, so so after these two patients showed up and he thought, 
is it fentanyl? Then he said, oh, let's start looking through through the hospital records here at Leahy, where he was in Burlington outside Boston, and see, has anyone else been missed? You know, how many people are there actually? Um, and, and have they been overlooked because they're part of a stigmatized population? It's very easy to say someone comes into an ER and they're confused. Well, okay, they're confused because because they had an overdose and often, you know, they, they want to leave. So how many people are we missing? And they did, um, after searching for a while, found two more cases. And that, that was enough for the Massachusetts Department of Public Health to say, all right, let's send out the word to doctors in Massachusetts and specifically say, have you seen this? And if you have, let us know. And why? What, um, you know, these patients... Unfortunately, as we learn in the in the in the in the book, that there's not an awful, awful lot that can be done for these patients. They, they will maybe regrow over time some of their capability in the hippocampus, but um, obviously there's concern about hey, can we prevent this terrible thing from happening to more people by like warning them about the risks of fentanyl or whatever it is we think is causing it? But there had to be some other bigger reason why they would be so interested in this uh, beyond just the well-being of these individual this handful of patients. Yeah. So, um, you know, so initially it was really just what is going on and how many people are out there because that, that is important, whether it's a hundred people or hundreds of thousands of people, but it's also the case that whenever you have something really strange and really rare, that's an opportunity to say, okay, what have we missed about this system that we thought we understood? What new thing does it reveal? And of course, because it does damage the hippocampus, the immediate thing to think about was Alzheimer's disease. Although, you know, very clearly fentanyl does not cause Alzheimer's disease. These people don't have Alzheimer's disease because the damage really is limited to the hippocampus. And in Alzheimer's disease, it slowly progresses outward to other parts of the brain, which is why it starts with memory loss, but then you develop problems with speech and planning and ultimately movement. Mm. Okay. So initially they were just very focused on, you know, what's the mechanism and who's, who's, who might be affected. Um, but then they did over time begin to sort of connect the dots with Alzheimer's disease. Um, and one of the clues that Barish came across was an anesthesiologist who had done work back in the 90s and, and 2000s with rodents looking at the effect of fentanyl on the hippocampus. And he found because the same Because fentanyl, of- which I guess we should clarify, fentanyl um, is also used in, in anesthesia. Like intentionally, the doctors will give patients fentanyl um, like for surgeries and things like that. That's right. And, and those people are very carefully monitored and they have enough oxygen. And, you know, clearly if fentanyl caused this syndrome in everyone, doctors wouldn't be using fentanyl. It's very rare. Um, so, and he, this anesthesiologist had been asked to consult on a patient who had epilepsy uh, and to advise, well, what's the best anesthesia to give someone with epilepsy? Um, and come to find that actually no one really knew. And on top of that, no one had looked at fentanyl. So he took it upon himself to start investigating it. And when he looked at people who had the APOE4 gene, which is the, which is the greatest genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, for um, not familial Alzheimer's disease, but late onset Alzheimer's disease that most people suffer from, hmm. um, he found that they had a very unusual, like a heightened level of activity in the hippocampus. So there was something that linked that. They also found that tau, which is the other protein associated with Alzheimer's disease, that that that, and normally you don't see it until people are much, much older, sort of in the Alzheimer's age, they found collections of that protein in young chronic heroin users uh, in Europe in a couple of different studies, hmm. which is very unusual. So it, it, it started to seem like there could be a connection between opioids and Alzheimer's that had not been recognized. So there's, there's uh, several hypotheses that have come out of this. So um, one idea is, okay, now that we know that opioids can damage the hippocampus in some people, how do we turn that tragedy around and make something out of it. So one thing is to say, can we make a new 
uh, mouse model for Alzheimer's um, based on opioids damaging the hippocampus. And, and this would be a type of mouse model that hasn't yet been used. Um, another idea is to say, well, hold on, if some people can get this terrible, really visible damage, what about lower doses of opioids? And is it possible that people who are on high doses of opioids long-term for chronic pain, are they damaging their memory in subtle ways that have gone under the radar? Mm. I mean, you will hear anecdotally lots of people saying, you know, my, my memory doesn't really work well, people who are on opioids chronically. And the people who are most vulnerable, which is older people, tend to be prescribed opioids at, at higher rates than the rest of the population. Um, a more kind of hopeful thing to come out of this is um, now, again, going back to the idea that opioids sort of activate the hippocampus in a way that is damaging. Could we use an anti-opioid, something that tamps down that activity to protect memory. Um, and uh, one of the ideas is to use naltrexone, which is uh, a medicine that's used widely to treat opioid disorders and, and alcoholism. So it's sort of the, the anti-opioid. So, um, so the hope is that this, you know, this tragedy, again, will be turned into something that can help protect all of us. I'm speaking with Lauren Aguirre, who is a science journalist, author of the new book, The Memory Thief and the Secrets Behind How We Remember. This is top of mind. Coming up next, we'll hear a little more about what life is like for these individuals with this very dramatic amnestic disorder. They uh, experienced a drug overdose, an opioid overdose, and woke up with no hippocampus function, hardly any short-term memory. How do you, how do you live like that? We'll be right back. It's good to have you with us today for Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. We're talking about memory, about the brain, about some really interesting research that's been done that was sparked actually by uh, a, a small group of patients that started showing up at emergency rooms six to eight years ago with no hippocampus function, a whole part of their brain just sort of like blitzed out. Uh, the common thread seemed to be that these individuals had been opioid uh, users, had overdosed, woken up with zero short-term memory. Lauren Aguirre is a science journalist who's written a book about about this, about the doctors who and researchers who've been trying to understand this specific memory loss condition in these people and also why that search is important for maybe unlocking some of the secrets surrounding memory more generally. And finding a cure for Alzheimer's would be the ideal down the line. The book is called The Memory Thief and the Secrets Behind How We Remember. Lauren Aguirre, tell us a little more about Owen. And that's what you call um, one of these patients you spent a lot of time with who, who had um, overdosed on uh, fentanyl and lost his hippocampus function. What, what's life like for him? How does, how does, he, how does he function? Well, um, he functions, ironically enough, uh, very well because of um, something he struggled with before the overdose. And that was an obsession with memory loss. For, for many years before he actually lost his memory, he spent hours every day journaling and creating lists of things that he had to remember to, to, to do. Um, because he had trouble was, with memory or just because it was an obsession, like just a strange... It, it was an obsession. Now, it's possible that he had some very subtle memory impairments, but you wouldn't know it. Mm. He graduated with a 4.0 from a very prestigious university. Mm. Um, so if there were memory problems, they were they were pretty, pretty minor. Yeah. Um, so that's then, really crazy ironic that he that he had is. an obsessive disorder that was focused on memory and what if I forget things? And then all of a sudden right. he has this illness or this disorder. That's crazy. And, and he was also obsessed with with memory, you know, from an academic standpoint. So mm -hmm. he took lots and lots of classes about memory and he, he heard about the patient HM and he worked in a lab where they studied the effect of cocaine on, on memory. So um, he really cared a lot about memory. And he had a similar experience to me in that he had an aura. And when he went to get it checked out, 
they found a possible tumor. And for him, that, that would have been terrible news for anyone. But for him, it was a huge relief because he had been sober for 18 months. But now he felt this was kind of his passport to going back to using fentanyl because no one would blame him for doing that if, if he was going to die anyway of cancer. So he was very excited about that until he got word from uh, his doctor that actually it was a mistake and there was no tumor. And, and that was the night that he went out and used fentanyl and woke up with this amnesia. Mm. Okay. A- a- how old was he at that point? 25. Okay. Still really young, young guy. He's got a mother yeah. and a sister. So they're with him there in the hospital. Um, and he, he enters into this loop. He, he's aware that he's He's now he now has a memory impairment, right? That uh, or does he keep forgetting that he can't remember anything? He keeps forgetting. He does not know that he has a memory impairment, which is also when uh, you realize that someone really has Alzheimer's, as if they don't know that they're forgetting. Okay. Um, and so for him, it was just every thirty seconds. They would have to say, you overdosed, you damaged your hippocampus. And because he had studied this, he knew exactly what that meant. He knew that meant he couldn't form new memories. But then he would fall asleep or get distracted and um, forget it all over again and have to be told it all over again. Now, his memory is now much, much better. Oh, okay, so he's recovered. He, 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 he has recovered some of his ability to lay down new memories. He has recovered some. So, um, you know, for about four months, he was in a complete fog. Um, but, you know, what's interesting is obviously he's still very intelligent. And he still has all his other capabilities around him. So he went online and started searching for, you know, what the heck happened to me because his doctors had no idea and basically sent him home with a prescription to drink water. Hmm. Um, and he came across an article that I wrote about the, the syndrome. And then from there, got connected with Jed Barish and from there with a neurologist in California named Monroe Butler, who was working at um, the Memory and Aging Center at UC San Francisco. So Owen, because he wanted to try to make some meaning out of his tragedy, agreed to participate in research there um, to try to really quantify the extent of the damage and really tease out um, how bad his memory was and, and, you know, how not bad other parts of his cognitive function were. We'll talk uh, in a moment about some of what we may have learned as a result of studying him and, and others who've had this syndrome. But, um, but how does he function? I mean, how, how, how do you go about your day if, if at any moment you can't remember where you were going or why you're doing what you're doing or sort of what needs to happen next? Yeah. So uh, the thing that he found so embarrassing and debilitating before is the thing that gets him through the days now. So he has these lists on his phone and he has alarms for when stuff needs to happen and he writes everything down, and um, he's he's managed to hold down some jobs, um, including um, one at a senior center where you know initially the job was just to sort of wave people in, um, but then his job became something almost designed to challenge someone who had memory problems, which was to to pick up the quarters at at various laundry stations around this pretty large campus that hmm. had no map. Um, right, because navigation, he, like how would you ever remember, <laughs> you know, how to get to a place? <laughs> right. Navigation is huge. And he, you know, we talk about the hippocampus as a sort of a monolithic structure, and it's really not. There are different areas in it, and, you know, there are different ends, and one end is more involved in one type of memory than another. And where he is really impaired is, is sort of space and time, so so navigation and time. So he will remember you know, he remembered meeting me, but he didn't remember when he met me. Um, and he remembered, you know, we, we played Scrabble one day. So all his vocabulary is intact. Mm. But every time it was his turn, he'd say, how many letters in the tray? So that was a new rule for him. And, and he just couldn't remember it. He couldn't um, remember that he needed to always have seven, seven tiles right. in a tray. But he beat me at Scrabble. Right. Okay, so what does that tell us then about the function of the hippocampus? So it's not where your 
intelligence is based. No. And it's not where your long-term memories live. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a little subtle, but but maybe I shouldn't get into that debate. I mean, too much. There there is a question of the character of your long-term memories if you have a lot of damage to your hippocampus. Like how are are they memories of sort of facts about your life as opposed to you reliving the memory, mm. right? So you, you, you might remember, oh, I got married um, on such and such a date. But if you had a lot of damage to your hippocampus, you wouldn't be able to put yourself back there um, in that moment with the sights and the sounds and the emotions. Oh, meaning that the hippocampus has more of the emotional side of memories? Meaning that the, the hippocampus is the part of the brain that puts it all together mm. as a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you in it. So, um, you know, there are different ways, and depending on whether you talk to a neuroscientist or a psychologist of thinking about it, um, you know, you can think of about it as an association machine, you know, it pulls together things that belong with each other. And that can be true for, for words as well as, as for memories. Um, yeah, so it could be a binding machine. Some people describe it as a, as a narrator. So, you know, it's not the thing that, um, that necessarily pulls together all the pieces. It's, it's the part of the brain that puts it in the right order and turns it into a story. And, and what exactly do doctors think happened in, in Owen's hippocampus then? Um, you know, they, they, they could see that it was just like lit up. Uh, in a way that showed like extreme damage on the scan that they did. But so does that mean that the whole hippocampus went offline? Did it like lose its connection to the rest of the brain? Did all those cells die? <laughs> like what what exactly right. do they think happened? So um, the idea is that there are these there, there's basically two types of neurons in the brain. And there's the ones we think about that are called excitatory neurons that just pass messages on sort of blindly, unintelligently. And then there's the real kind of uh, masters of the brain. And those are called inhibitory neurons. And their job is to calm the rest of the neurons down and say, here's when you fire, here's when you don't. Because if they're just, if neurons are firing all the time, that becomes a seizure ultimately, becomes something that damages the brain. So um, the idea is that uh, fentanyl actually turns off those inhibitory neurons so they can no longer do their job. Mm. And um, the hippocampus is just firing wildly, wildly out of control and causing a lot of damage. You know, as to how many neurons died, there's really no way to quantify that. But they do know that with Owen, uh, his hippocampus shrunk by about 10%. Okay. But he still has a hippocampus, and he was able to actually recover some of the function he didn't have in those first couple of months. Is that right? That's right. So the first couple of months were just a complete fog and a, um, you know, not remembering for 30 seconds. He can hold on to more more memories now. But what's missing is, again, the time. So it's very fragmentary. Um, he'll have glimpses of things that happened, but they they don't kind of go together in a sequence. And, you know, it's, it's hard because everyone else's lives have, have moved forward in a different way. And so he, you know, he might forget that his best friend told him yesterday that he'd broken up with his girlfriend. Mm. So he might just show up and start talking about the girlfriend and, and, and not realize uh, that that's a, a painful subject and things have changed. Yeah. Unless he wrote it down. <laughs> Which he does. Unless he writes he everything. And then he's constantly checking his lists. Checking his list. Um, yeah. And so do the doctors think then that the improvement that he experienced was because the hippocampus can actually regenerate? Like, is that news to us? Um, so it's not news that um, your hippocampus can grow new neurons. Um, what, what scientists really don't know yet is, you know, how much and how involved might that be in any kind of healing that, that Owen had, you know, it's possible that, that in the early stages, um, you know, there was just so much initial damage that, um, it really wasn't working at all. And then, you know, maybe it slowly rewired, um, and the, the inflammation, the sort of acute insult right after the overdose, um, calm down. 
Um, so, hmm. you know, that's just another one of the mysteries, but, um, he has really managed to rebuild his life in, in a remarkable way and just work around, uh, what's missing, you know, through the notes, but also just through an attitude of, okay, this is, this is what I, what I can't do anymore, but what can I do? And more of a, of a sense of gratitude for, you know, everything that he learned before, he still has and, um, and the supports that he have and his friends and his family. So, um, you know, his, his life is, is far from over. Has there been any effort to help him regrow any of those neurons? I mean, it, it would seem like that would also be crucial for, you know, an early Alzheimer's patient, for example, if you can get rid of all those tangled proteins and then help fix the damage. Is there anything like that that we know of yet? Well, th- that's the hope, but uh, that's sort of very early days. That's 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 work in labs with mice. Mm. But um, you know, there is some evidence that exercise could lead to the growth of new neurons, and that's one thing that um, Alzheimer's experts will agree. You know, exercise is a good idea if you can do it. Mm. Basically, anything you can do for your health is good for your brain health. Whether it's getting better sleep, whether it's using your brain. Um, in challenging ways, whether it's being social, diet, all of those things are are important for brain health. And the healthier your brain is, even if there's damage happening, the more your brain can compensate for it. I'd love to talk for just a moment before we run out of time, Lauren Aguirre, about um, Jed Barish, the neurologist who took it upon himself to really try to figure out what had happened to Owen and other patients like him. Um, how? Why? <laughs> because this was not his main job. He's not like a primarily a researcher. He's a he's a doctor and an administrator, and he had a day job and a young family at the same time. But this really became an obsession for him. Why is that? Well, um, I think it it appealed to his sense of um, puzzle solving um, and pattern recognition, and his background as an epidemiologist as well. Um, but also it was something where he felt like he could make a difference because, you know, he's not a research scientist with a big lab. Um, he, he doesn't have time to run grants. I mean, to, to write grants, it's, it's a big, big job to get money to do research. So this was something that he was able to pursue, you know, on nights, uh, weekends, early mornings from his couch with, with emails and um, getting other doctors who, for whom this was also not their day job to, to look into other pieces that he couldn't do himself. Um, and, you know, every clinician I've spoken to wants to be able to offer something to their patients. And so far, there really isn't much to offer Alzheimer's patients um, in terms of something that's really going to slow down uh, the course of the disease. I mean, there's supports you can offer them in terms of how to cope with it. Um, so all researchers are motivated by it. And, and I think he just thought, well, maybe this is a place where I can make a difference. And also, just going back to the patients themselves, it's, it's a terrible thing to happen to you, but it's always worse to not know what happened to you or why, or if you're the only person. So even just having the dignity of a diagnosis means a lot to people. A lot of the story, though, that you write in the book, Lorna Geary, is um, Dr. Barish running into uh, roadblocks <laughs> at a return and sort of like desperately emailing anyone he could come up with, researching scientific papers, trying to figure out who else has looked at, you know, various aspects of this, and also just trying to get, you know, doctors and hospitals to report that they'd seen similar uh, patients that had had drug overdoses and impaired hippocampuses. Um, At the end of it all, uh, I came away a little bit unclear as to whether or not it really yielded anything um, other than opened up a whole bunch of other doors (laughs) for people to try to walk through. Um, What what is your sense? Has all the work paid off yet for Dr. Barish? Well, I think for, for him, it has paid off in the sense that, yes, this is now a recognized syndrome. And uh, if it happens to someone, they'll find papers about it, they'll at least know what happened. But the rest of it is still very much uh, a work in progress. There is the anesthesiologist I referred to earlier, Andrew Kofke at UPenn. Um, They have a grant into the NIH um, that 
you know, scored very highly, so they believe it'll be funded to actually look systematically at this question of whether people who are taking high dose opioids um, chronically, are they suffering memory? Mm. So no, it's very much the early days, but I think that's the value of rare cases like these is to generate new hypotheses to be tested. And, you know, quite frankly, um, people have been working on Alzheimer's for 30 plus years and, you know, we know a lot more and Alzheimer's researchers are optimistic now that, you know, the tide is turning. Um, but these things take time. And I, uh, I definitely, there was no way to wrap this all up with a bow at the end because that's not really how science works. Lauren Aguirre is a science journalist and her book is The Memory Thief and the Secrets Behind How We Remember. I appreciate you taking time to talk us through this today. Thanks. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. More great conversations from the Top of Mind archive are coming up. Thanks for taking time today to tune into Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. The stereotypes we have about aging are more powerful than we think. In fact, the more we think that aging will affect us physically or cognitively, the more it actually does. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And this process is called stereotype threat. It's well established for people in minority groups. Its effect on older adults is less recognized, according to Sarah Barber, who is a professor of psychology and gerontology at Georgia State University. She's on the line now. Professor Barber, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Walk us through a real-life example, if you could, of how this stereotype threat might play out for an aging person. Yeah, so maybe I'll sort of tell you two anecdotes about that, actually. So okay. when I first started doing work um, with older adults, one of the things that really blew my mind was how people talked about themselves and about their own memory abilities. I'd be bringing people in to do these memory tests in the lab, and they'd maybe be 65, 70, and they're doing quite fine, but they're making these very disparaging comments about themselves about, oh, I guess I'm having a senior moment. And it really made me wonder um, how that might be a affecting how they'd be doing on these tests, how much better would they be doing if they weren't uh, so worried about it? Hmm. Um, in clinical settings, um, to give you a real life example of where I think this might play out, we had a man that called into our lab one time because he had noticed that he had a diagnosis in his medical chart of mild cognitive impairment. And he was really concerned about that, as you might imagine, and also had uh, thought he had done really well in our lab study when he'd come in previously. And so I, I'm not a clinician, but I looked at his scores and his scores actually were very normal. Um, and so I talked to him briefly on the phone about it, and he basically told told me a story that sounds very much like stereotype threat. He went into his doctor's office, and for the very first time in his life, he was given a brief cognitive assessment screener. Um, and when his doctor first started administering it, he was really taken aback and concerned about why he was being asked these questions. He was distracted, and so then he didn't answer the questions well. And then he started perseverating on the fact that he wasn't doing well and what that would that mean for him and his performance. And eventually, he sort of gave up. And all of that together resulted in him not doing as well as he should have done on the test and um, potentially getting flagged for having some cognitive impairment. And so what is what is the stereotype about as you get older, you start to forget things? <laughs> what exactly is that stereotype? What's the power of that stereotype in that scenario? Yeah, so I think that this is a, a bit of a tricky situation compared to other forms of stereotype threat that have been studied. So race stereotypes, gender stereotypes, there's not truth to them. There's um, no real differences between the groups. But with aging, there are some normative changes that happen with age in terms of our memory abilities. And I think what that starts us wondering about is whether the things that we're noticing, where we notice that we're maybe not remembering quite as quickly as we used to, is that a normal thing? Or is that sort of a slippery slope towards Alzheimer's disease and dementia? And once we start having those concerns, it can actually be really disruptive and actually interfere with our memory performance and make us do worse. And as you were saying, sort of turn into this self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. So the idea of stereotype threat is that a person knows there's a stereotype about them. Mm -hmm. Let's say I'm a woman in a math class. 
which I know this has been studied. And maybe (laughs) I know that there's a stereotype that women do worse at math. And so I'm worried in that math class about falling into that stereotype. Like, I don't want to be one of those women who's bad at math. (laughs) And so my fear about fulfilling that stereotype or being seen as, you know, everyone else will look at me and be like, she got to be on that test. She must, you know, obviously women are bad at math and she's proof. Like my fear about all of that could, you know, preoccupy me to the point where I might actually do poorly in my math class or I might, um, you know, uh, underperform um, what I could do exactly okay and so so when you think about that for I think there's a variety of different things that can happen in those situations so they talk about stereotype threat being this sort of disruptive concern and for some people it might just be a preoccupation where they're thinking about it for other people they might really be feeling sort of stress and anxiety and be Mm -hmm. spending time trying to regulate that and also on top of that we know stress and anxiety are bad for performance in many situations And so in a case where you have an older adult, um, you've described a situation where the fear of being an older person that's losing their memory um, could actually make it so Mm -hmm. that they perform worse on a memory test because they're so concerned about it. Um, Where else, though, do you think that this could be affecting an older person's actual ability to perform a, a task in daily life? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, one of the ones I probably think about a lot is just because of my own life is when we are doing these research studies about aging and when we sort of then disseminate information about here's how aging changes your performance. Mm. If you think about a lot of the lab studies where we do these things, we bring people into a lab where we've advertised that we're studying age and memory or age and whatever. And they are then in a university campus where they're filled with younger people and it's very clear that there's an age comparison that's being made. I think a lot of the ways that our university campuses are set up are prime for causing people to feel stereotype threat, which could then result in older people underperforming and us thinking that there are much larger age changes in the real world than maybe there actually are. Wow. So so our, our studies, the scientific studies that show declines that take place in aging might actually be skewed by stereotype threat. That is my personal belief is Hmm. that a lot of them are a lot of the ways that we try to create stereotype threat in the lab are the sort of exact same ways that a lot of lab studies are set up. Hmm. Um, Okay, so so one thing is that we may have uh, we may have a, 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 um, a, a worse idea of what aging actually looks like based on some of these studies if they've been skewed. Is there any evidence, though, that older adults perform less well in, say, the workplace or on a driving test or even on like a physical fitness test if Exactly. Sorry, I was cutting you off there. Um, so I think I, I'm trained as a cognitive psychologist. So I tend to think about cognition and memory and um, those types of domains the most. But that's there's so many stereotypes about aging, and they're not just all about memory. And there has been lots of work showing that these effects are also not limited to memory as well. Um, so you hit on some of the major ones. There are stereotypes that older adults are less um, Uh, strong, that they're less um, physically fit than they used to be. And when we make these stereotypes very salient in the environment, we do find that older adults underperform, particularly on on very difficult physical tests. So if the test is something really easy, these effects don't really show up. Um, But if it's a really hard physical task, like we did one where we asked people to walk um, sort of along a narrow Uh, walkway, sort of like almost imagine like you're on a balance beam, but it's on the ground. So there's just tape, you're not actually up in the air. But that's hard to do. And we found that people did that um, less well when we told them that the reason we were asking them to do it is because we were looking at age changes in physical function. Um, Other people, I haven't done this work myself, but other people have looked at driving and they find that older adults drive faster and have slower break times when they, again, are told that the reason that they're looking at their driving is to examine age changes. Mm -hmm. And there's also been work in the workplace as well, where they find that when people work in environments where they think that their other employees, their coworkers, or their bosses have negative age attitudes or expectations, um, these older employees tend to be less committed to the workplace and have greater intentions to retire. Wow. 
So how do how do you get out of this cycle, though? I mean, because it's so sneaky. On the one hand, there there may be may well be some declines that happen physically and cognitively in age. Um, uh, and on the other hand, you know, some of the problem here is that people are having these declines because they are afraid of fulfilling the stereotype. Exactly. Right? It just seems like you're trapped. What what can older adults? And the people who love them do little things that we can do to try to make sure that we're not falling victim yeah, to this. Yeah, I think the cycle is actually in some ways even worse than you might be imagining. So you could imagine that if we think about a workplace, someone asks an older person to do a particular task and then they feel stereotype threat and they don't do it as well. Everyone's going to assume that that's an accurate reflection on their abilities. And so then when they're assigning the next tasks, they maybe won't give people things. And so then that sort of perpetuates this mm. whole thing. Um, how do we get rid of it is a much harder question. So I think um, there are some there is some evidence that if you know about stereotype threat, that you might be less susceptible to uh, falling prey to it. Okay. So that's one of the reasons I like to do these types of interviews <laughs> is I feel like the more that people know about this, um, hopefully then the less likely they'll be affected by it themselves. Um, I think the other thing, to think about is sort of reminding yourself of values that you have that are associated with other things that are not being threatened. So um, sometimes I think we can get wrapped up in, uh, I'm getting a little bit of feedback, but get wrapped up in thinking that this test is the one test that really matters, but we all have value in many different domains and sort of reminding ourselves of these other skills that we do have. Um, there's some evidence that that might be protective as well. Sarah Barber is a professor of psychology and gerontology at Georgia State University. Thank you very much for taking time with us today to talk Thank us through this. Thank you so much. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. It has been great having you with us today for this curated episode of the show from our archives. You know, we've been on the air every weekday since 2015. And there are so many conversations we've had during that time that are worth another listen. When we started the show back then, our goal was to dig deep, because no matter how clear cut you think an issue is, there's always another perspective. And there's likely to come a moment while listening to Top of Mind when you think, huh, that had not occurred to me. You can tap into the full Top of Mind archive on the free BYU Radio app. And we'd love to have you connect with us on social media to let us know what you think of the show. We are at BYU Top of Mind on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.